good morning, everyone. <laughs> I'm just going to jump right in and read this poem from Hafiz. I, uh, I worked on this lecture last weekend down in North Carolina, and um, as is usual, I got through about a third of it, which was all right, except it really didn't make sense. And so uh, <laughs> today I'm going to try to race through and, and, uh, and get, all the, get all of the points made. In case I don't, I'm going to give you, just like they say in, uh, in what, uh, public speaking class in college, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you, then I'm going to tell it to you, and then I'm going to tell you what I told you. <laughs> so, what I'm hoping to look at this morning, with Mother's permission, she may change it in the middle, who knows, but the, the idea of this world being unreal and where it comes from, uh, but breaking out of the mind and breaking out of the idea of philosophy and something separate that we can't touch, and bringing that down and kind of... Uh, gestating some meaning out of it that we can actually use in our uh, false idea of existence uh, as a separate entity from everything else. And then to talk about its implications and uh, the results of that and some decisions that we can make based on it for the way that we think and be behave. And, uh, and then to end by kind of bringing in what comes up behind this unreality to give it meaning, to give it... Uh, importance, to give it something that doesn't leave us uh, depressed and <laughs> sitting inert in a dark corner somewhere, wondering what's the point of another day. <laughs> so hopefully we can get all three of those covered. You can see the problem if you get stuck in just one of them. You're kind of only a third of the way through the thought. I want to start this morning, though, with my friend Hafiz and his poem called A Suspended Blue Ocean. The sky is a suspended blue ocean, and the stars, they are the fish that swim. The planets are the white whales I sometimes hitch a ride on, and the sun and all light have forever fused themselves into my heart and upon my skin. There is only one rule on this wild playground. For every sign that Hafiz has ever seen reads the same. They all say, have fun, my dear, my dear, have fun, in the Beloved's divine game, oh, in this, the Beloved's wonderful game. <laughs> On Wednesday nights, we're studying the uh, Viveka Chudamani, and it's kind of a... Uh, uh, very, a very powerful Advaitic text. And so uh, I pulled out this idea of uh, oneness from there, of the fact that the unreality of the world is there. And uh, the, the verse that I was looking at, I, somewhere in page 170 or something like that in our version of the Viveka Chudamani, it says, the Shrutis themselves declare that this dualistic universe is but a delusion from the standpoint of absolute truth. This is also experienced in the state of dreamless sleep. So uh, I, I was curious about that. It's not often that you know, some scriptural text kind of randomly mentions some other scriptural text without uh, getting specific. So I wanted to go pull up uh, the places in the Upanishads uh, that say this, that make this point. And I pulled a few from the kata, one from the pridharyanyaka, <laughs> one from the mundaka, and one from the chundogya. <laughs> so, <laughs> sorry about that, I'm an amateur what to do. So in the kata, Yama is talking to our friend Nachiketas, and he's describing this universe to him. And Yama says, as the one fire, after, after it has entered the world, though one, takes different forms according to whatever it burns, so does the internal Atman of all living beings, though one, take a form according to whatever he enters and is outside all forms. He goes on to say in the next, next he gives three examples actually in a row, four examples, five examples. 
but these first two are the same. As the one heir, after it has entered the world, though one, takes different forms according to whatever it enters, so the internal Atman of all living beings, though one, assumes forms according to whatever he enters, and is outside all forms. So we see here that, in fact, he starts off by saying, yes, this, this dualistic universe, the universe that we live in and that we see, is unreal. And uh, many of us cling on to that and, and think, oh, there's, there's nothing here. It's fake. Uh, you know, it's just a delusion. It's, a, it's a, an image. But in the same way that you can say that about a movie, that, that a movie is not what you think it is, that it's just moving images paired with sound on a screen, and it's your mind that takes those individual unmoving images and makes a story out of it and then ties that to your own experiences and attachments and, and elicits a feeling and an emotion out of it and an idea of a beginning and an end, uh, you can say that there's nothing there, that that's an illusion. It's true. But when you turn that projector off, there is something still there. There is, there is something behind it all. And uh, here Yama is telling us that it is that, that uh, it's the divine, it's the beloved, as it were. Uh, anytime you get this close to that dividing line in Vedanta, you kind of have to be careful about words. So if I accidentally uh, say a word that's not consistent with this Advaitic idea, know that uh, there's no way to, to, to say a word that's not in opposition to the Advaitic idea. So be gracious. <laughs> So in this notion, we have God living in all things, that, that everything that has consciousness, he goes on to say uh, down here, actually, the wise who behold the self as the eternal among the transient, as the conscious among the conscious, who, though one, grants the desires of many as dwelling in their own selves, to them belongs eternal peace and not to others. So we see that, that this consciousness is that substance, it's that air or that fire, that... that uh, the, that Yama is talking about in that first paragraph, that we, this consciousness that inundates everything, that's both in us and outside of us, that is the reason for the projection of the world, it's the reason for our experience of it, it's the reason for our uh, 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 dreams and hopes and our letdowns, our pains and whatnot, uh, because we twist it and give it, uh, un give it odd meanings, actually. Very similar to the way that, that light you know, is, is kind of the driving force behind that movie, that is the light and the projector putting that story on the screen. But without that consciousness present, without you present, with all of your samskaras and with all of your, uh, you know, uh, worries and concerns, that movie wouldn't mean anything. It, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be a story. It would just be a flashing of, of light and a fluttering of sounds, as it were. And so through this delusion, through this ignorance, that is what's unreal. That is what takes a flat screen and flashing colors and sound and creates a story. So here we are in the middle of this amazing experience of existence, which we know nothing about, as we've talked about before. That, uh, you know, science is very comfortable and a very reassuring thing as long as you stick to the boundaries between this point and this point. Science makes lots of sense. Analysis makes lots of sense. But there is an uncertainty factor in this, in this world. There's... There's a principle here that doesn't allow the world to be defined. You can't come up with a statement. You know, uh, in physics class, I remember the professor saying that you can really only talk in terms of probabilities. You know, that you can't, you can't guarantee that just because you put the, the box here and you drop the ball from here, that every time that that ball is going to land in the box. He says, you know, that, that there, there, there's an element of chance, an element of unknowing in this world, that pretty much guarantees at some point, at one drop, something's going to happen and that ball's not going to end up in the box. I don't know if it's true. You can test it if you want <laughs> and see. But this idea that, that you're never going to know exactly what's going on in this world. You're never going to be able to predict things in, in an absolute way. You know, despite the fact right now artificial intelligence is big in the news, I just read that, uh, that it failed spectacularly. That was the statement of the writer. It failed spectacularly in identifying who was going to win the Kentucky Derby, which I guess happened yesterday. So, thank God. <laughs> thank God that there's still going to be some mystery even after Google takes over and puts the mastermind in place for us. 
There is no way to, to, to discern an absolute meaning from this world or to make absolute statements about the way things are. You know, Mother delights in, in not letting it be that way. We see that in that story with Takor when one of the disciples comes and, and, and is talking to him and, uh, and tells him, you know, well, God can't do everything. I mean, there's rules. There's organization in this world. You know, you can't have a red flower and a white flower growing on the same, on the same bush, you know. And uh, so, of course, because it's Takor and <laughs> because he's amazing, uh, he goes out to the garden the next day and he's not looking to prove anybody wrong. But he walks by a, a bush, a rose bush, and he sees a white rose and a red rose growing on the, same, on the same bush. And, of course, he's totally excited and takes them and runs and says, See, 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 you can't, you can't say it like that. And that's a wonderful thing because in, re, in religion, many of the times, we always want to nail down absolutes. It makes judging people very easily. It makes judging ourselves very easily. And uh, then those truths that, that we exhibit well, we like to really camp on those ones and focus on them. And the ones that we don't do so well, eh, we don't talk about those too much. <laughs> we kind of leave them behind. But this idea that, that you can't nail it down uh, in this world, that grace is the bottom line in this story. And that uh, mother has her ways. She's going to give that piece of candy to whoever she wants to give that piece of candy to. You know, when Takor makes that illustration, he says, grace is like that. You know, a little boy will sit there with his toy, and you can go over and beg him for that toy. And he's going to be, uh-uh, no, it's my toy, my toy. And then for some inexplicable reason, some stranger walks by, and the boy runs after him, wanting him to give, wanting to give the, boy to, the toy to him, you know, making no sense at all. That's how this world's put together. That's why it's called a play. That's why it's called fun. You know, it's not a calculation. Uh, you know, if it was... It, if it was able to be calculated like that and manipulated like that, if that unknowing wasn't here, then you can be sure that it would have been gamed already. And you and I would just be pawns being exhibited and exploited in whatever ways that the powerful decided to exploit us if they were actually able to get down there and determine who was winning the Kentucky Derby you know, in a, in a meaningful way. Or uh, game Wall Street more than it perhaps is already. So this notion that this world is not what you think it is, that, that it's, it has an existence, but not one that provides you with any of the materials that you've, that you've projected onto it, all the meanings that your samskaras have come up with, all the meanings of your experiences, and all the implications of your attachments and your desires creating your past and your future, that there's no, that all of that is false. The scriptures tell you that again and again and again. They tell you that you are not the doer in this. Because if it's unreal, what is there to do? If it's, not, if, there's, if, it's, if it's not as you think it is, how is it that you think you're going to manipulate it in a way that's going to give you something or that you're going to reap something from? Uh, this, uh, in the Badranika Upanishad, he goes on and says, because when, this dual when there is duality, as it were, then one smells something, one sees something, one hears something, one speaks something, one thinks something, one knows something. But when to the knower of Brahman everything has become self, then what should one smell and through what? What should one see and through what? What should one hear and through what? What should one speak and through what? What should one think and through what? What should one know? And through what? Through what should one know that owing to which all is known? Through what, O oh Maitreyi, should one know the knower? <laughs> so he's pointing to something very important here. I'm going to go on to the Mundaka, and we're going to put these two together. Manifest outside is this very thing that is the deepest source of our aspirations. Verily, in front of our eyes is manifest that very thing which is inconceivable otherwise. The deepest within is also there as the perceivable form before the senses. It is deepest in the heart, no doubt, but it is also capable of appearing before our very eyes as the thing that we see. This Brahman is the great manifested support of all beings. It is the cause of all of our experiences. It is very close to us nearer than our neck, yet inside the cavity of our heart, everything that breathes, everything that is alive, all beings, whether moving or not moving, 
anything that winks. All these are rooted, this one single being, rooted in the one single being, as spokes are fixed upon the hub of a wheel. It is the cause of both the gross and the subtle. It is the most adorable of all beings. I highlighted that last little section there because it gives personality to something that is effaced of personality when we talk about this idea of oneness, this, this reality that, that really is beyond attribute, has all the attributes and more or no attributes and yet attributes. Any, any contradictory thing you can say, but nothing that's absolute can be said about it. But this notion that, that this God, this, this consciousness, this divinity uh, that, that pervades all things, that has taken all of these forms... That, that, it is, that it is reflected back to us, reflected off of all the lenses that, that we've put in front of our eyes to give us this notion of being that we're experiencing, that we have to throw off, that we have to know is not true. He says that happiness belongs to those alone. He says he is the one ruler, the internal Atman of all living beings, who makes manifold his one form. Those wise men who realize him in their hearts to them belongs eternal happiness, and not for others. So this knowledge of God as one, this knowing that it's, that it's the beloved that is in and through all things, that is what brings that inner happiness, that brings that inner joy, that brings that inner fulfillment. And this world is a manifestation of that. It's not a doing of that. <laughs> it's not, it, it doesn't have a purpose and it doesn't have a point to it. It simply is isness. It is God being. When God is this, this is what you get in here. I tried to think, you know, the other night in class, I thought, well, it's kind of like, like us and our body heat. There, there, there's a scientific reason to body heat, but how many of you know it, right? <laughs> so for us, there's no purpose to it. It just is. It means you're alive. If you don't have it, you're in trouble. You wake up in the morning, there's no body heat. You probably didn't wake up that morning. <laughs> so it's a good thing. Make that the first thing you check. So this idea that, that just in being, you, you put off this heat. This heat is manifested in you. There's not a point in it. There's not a purpose in it. It's not something that you're conjuring up to get to a certain end or to create something from. It's just indicative of you being, your body being what it is. And this world, this manifestation is exactly that. It's just, it's just what is when God is. And it's what happens when, you, when, when God, <laughs> this is inexplicable, this part, but I'm about to explain it. This, this, when God lets a, a portion of himself become herniated in some thoughts and some thinking, as it were, and then that little hernia takes on a whole identity of its own and thinks that it has an existence separate and apart from the body and goes on about its business, only then does all of this other stuff come up. You know, the hernia has to wonder, what's my point in life? What am I doing? I'm obviously here. I exist. He doesn't understand any of the rest because he thinks himself separate from the body. So the isness of the body, the point of the body, the master of the body, all of that is external to him. He doesn't know what's going on. So he has to come up with his own idea of these things. And he makes a mess of it, obviously, as we have, and gets completely lost in it and loses that happiness, loses that contentment that belongs to the one who knows himself to be eternal, who knows himself to be eternally full, eternally blessed, eternally free, you know, eternally full of light, bliss, existence, knowledge, the sum of all things. When that hernia gets, gets twisted in his thoughts, gets that little collection of ideas that he clings to and calls himself separate from this divinity, then all of this happens. The big mess happens. So it's unreal. What does that mean for us? It's not what we think it is. What does that mean for us? It's God in and through all things. What does that mean for us? You can't really go to the job, go to your cubicle at work or to your office at work and and come up with something for that. It's like, how do you fit that in here? Here I am in an office that doesn't exist, okay? Serving a boss who's unreal, mm, all right? In a room full of people who are chatting about me that don't really exist. What do you do with that, you know? What do you do? It, the first notion, the immature notion, and it's one we often get stuck in, you become deflated, right? Undigested Vedanta, 
<laughs> undigested Vedanta, is this idea you stop there, everything is unreal, there's no meaning, there's no point, there's no nothing in there. It's just dead, empty space, so what's the point? Where am I going to go? Everything tastes like ash at the end of the day. I'm going to die, who cares? <laughs> you know, It's that notion. The real way to use it, the proper way to use it, is, is in a point that we made actually, a, a, I don't know when I made it, a couple of wives back, but certainly the scriptures made it long before I was around. But this notion that you are here as a manifestation, that you don't have a point other than that. You're not the doer because this world is unreal, Takor says. You don't have an independent existence. You're not the doer. So you're a manifestation. You're simply a being, a, represent, a representative, as it were. And so you're not here to take. If the world is unreal, stop trying to get a, as much of it as you can. <laughs> Frankly, that's the bottom line. If there's nothing here and you've been told clearly this is not real, it's not what it seems to be, it's not what you think it is, stop going after it. That's the first thing the scriptures say. The scriptures say don't try and collect as much of the imagination as you possibly can. When you go to the movies, what an odd thing it would be to try and grab something from the movie. <laughs> you know, How quickly you would understand that that beautiful couch that sits in Brad Pitt's house in that movie can't be yours <laughs> from that screen. You can go up there and you can claw at that screen all you want. You know, you can even imagine that you've got it. But the fact of the matter is there's nothing there for you. It's unreal. It's a story that depends on your perceptions to give it meaning. So in this world, take that to heart. Change the fundamental definition of your life. One, even though everybody asked you from kindergarten forward what you wanted to become, Change the question to what, what you are. Make what you do not, not, not part of what you're trying to get or trying to accomplish, but make what you do attached to what you are, to what your nature is, to what it is that you are manifesting in this world. Let go of the world. And it's not, you know, we, so many times we go to, to the scriptures and we read these things and they seem so foreign and so far away and so untouchable to us. And they're not. They're not. They're very, they're very straightforward and they're giving us some wonderful ideas here. When the, when, when the scriptures say the world is unreal, you can measure that. <laughs> you can measure that. You can look at this world and understand that. How do you understand that? Well, go buy a really nice tomato and sit that tomato on your kitchen counter and just leave it there and just come by and check it every now and then. That thing is going to take on more and more bizarre forms. It's going to give birth to more and more life and shapes and colors and smells. And in the end, it's going to end up a little tiny pile of, of dirt on your counter. You know, and this can work in your favor too. I'll tell you a very spooky story that I had. In in San Francisco, we have Shanti Ashram. You know that ashram that was given to Vivekananda by Ms. Buch in Southern California. And we go up there every year on the last Saturday in April to do a pilgrimage and to spend some nice time meditation. And uh, the the brahmacharis and swamis go up a week before, and we clear out the paths and clean the cabins and sweep everything up. And I, uh, as seems to be my lot continually, was the junior most uh, in the assembly, which is a great thing from a spiritual perspective, but can be quite troubling <laughs> in the actual manifestation of things because the task at hand this particular weekend was digging out the outhouses. They had filled up. And so we had to take the outhouse off of the platform and redig the holes underneath. Guess who got to hold the shovel? It was me. And I was horribly concerned about it because I was like, this is going to be really disgusting. Like I was sitting there thinking, I have to sit here and dig up a hundred years worth of people manure at this moment and throw it over my shoulder as I get deeper and deeper into the hole. So I'm thinking about it. But I, after we got the, the outhouse moved over to the side and after I took my trusty shovel 
and uh, put rubber bands around my pant legs and uh, stepped down to the hole and started shoveling, I realized what everybody knows. There wasn't any manure there. There was potting soil. And when I dug it and throw it out, it looked like, felt like, and smelled like potting soil from Home Depot. <laughs> there was no difference. I mean, literally no difference. And the smell of it, because yes, I got a little curious. I was like, really? <laughs> Went down there and took a closer look. It was, it was soil, which made my job a lot better, as long as I could ignore the fact of where it began, you know, what its, what its origins are. And, uh, you know, it was an interesting observation, actually, because this world, everything, the good and the bad, all of the stuff eventually becomes potting soil, all of it. You know, I went back to, uh, I, I used to work at Potomac Valley Country Club, but my first job was at Potomac Valley Country Club over in Poolsville, Maryland. When I, got when I got assigned to this center three years ago, one of my first things that I did when I got here was to drive out to Poolsville because it was the first time that I had ever gone back to somewhere that I had grown up. And so I thought that would be an interesting experience, and it really, really was. Because as I drove up to the Potomac Valley Country Club, I could tell something was wrong, but I couldn't quite figure out what it was until I got there and realized that it was abandoned and that the roof had fallen in. That's a very odd feeling when the place that you had your first job that's a big part of your life, that's a big part of your memories, a huge part of your samskaras, because of that particular age, had fallen in on itself. And the big ballroom where they used to have all the fancy dances, I used to be the coat check guy, you know, to, and working for my tips there, and all these fancy people would come in in their fancy cars and pull up in that front walkway and come in with their fancy everything and hand it to me to hang up. And I would hang it up. Well, I went in there, and I saw the coat room after I'd stepped over, you know, all these ceiling tiles that had come down. The chandeliers were still there but with all kinds of trash hanging in them that had fallen in. The ceiling was down. I went down to the kitchen, because I was a dishwasher when I started there. Went into the kitchen, and all the dishes were still there. <laughs> all the cups, all the glasses. But fallen down, dirt, you know, creepers, branches, all kinds of stuff going through there. And I thought, God, that really made an impression on me. Because a place that existed in my mind didn't exist anymore. I couldn't go back to it. I couldn't go into it anymore. And that, that had all kinds of implications about growing up and about being and about the nature of this world, that you, you can't go back. My friends weren't there. You know, the people I worked with weren't there. Nothing was there. And I understood. I saw, wow, that's the nature of all of this. All of that stuff, once it exists in your head, once you've put it in your head, you can't go back to it. It disappears. It falls away. So the primary lesson of this reality, that it's not what you think it is, is that don't come here to take something with you. Don't come here to collect something. It's not, d d just don't do it. Don't collect experiences. Don't collect money. Don't collect pleasure. Don't collect trinkets. Don't collect houses. Don't collect cars. Don't collect any of this. Because all you're doing is paying really good money for potting soil. <laughs> yeah. Really good money for potting soil. Because isn't that the truth? You buy that, you buy that fancy car, and uh, ten, 10 years later, you're like, oh, that piece of junk? Yeah, it's time to get rid of that one and get a new one. You know, Like that it goes. And that's, that's exactly what happens. You get on a treadmill that you're not going to be able to get off if you come here to collect, if you come here to take something that is unreal to feed yourself. Not going to happen. Did you see that, uh, that uh, movie Hook? And they're on the island of Never Never Land, and all the kids, you know, live on this imaginary island. And uh, and uh, um, that comedian, what's it, Robin Williams, is the dad who somehow gets to this island. And he's sitting there, and all the kids are around this giant banquet table. And uh, they're eating, a, you see it from the kid's perspective, a great feast of of cake and ice cream and cookies and candies, all bright colors, and they're having a big food fight with it and all of that. And then the adult is sitting down at the end, Robin Williams, and he's looking at the table, and these kids, there's nothing on the table. They're all going through the motions and doing whatnot, but they're not eating anything. And he's, he's confused, you know. He doesn't, he doesn't understand that his adult mind is not able to see 
the reality of the kids. But for the kids, it's a feast, it's a banquet. They're all just digging in, just going to it. And it's kind of like that, you know, this, this notion. For the seer, for someone like Takor, you know, that's part of, part of the reason I think he runs around laughing a lot is that he, he catches a vision of us, you know, sitting there. We've got nothing in our hands. We've got nothing around us. And we're just working so hard and, you know, building it up and collecting it and putting it together. He shows some of this stuff here in, in uh, some wonderful ways. If I can find it here real quick. Uh. This is the exciting part of the lecture here when I get lost. Oh, here it is. Mani Malak and Bhavanat referred to the exhibition, which was then being held near the Asiatic Museum, and they said, many Maharajas have sent precious articles to the exhibition, gold couches and the like. It's worth seeing. <laughs> so, obviously they stole something from the Cardassians here. <laughs> A gold couch. All right. So the devotees, he looks at the devotees with a smile. This is the point in hand. You know, the devotees are like, oh, they've got a really incredible thing going on over there. The gold couch must be seen. So Tucker, he's, he's chuckling to himself. He says with a smile, he says, oh, yes, you can gain much by visiting those things. <laughs> you realize that those articles of gold and the other things sent by the Maharajas are mere trash. That is a great gain in itself. When I used to go to Calcutta with, Calcutta with Hridoy, he would show me the Viceroy's palace and say, look, uncle, there is the Viceroy's palace with its big columns. The mother revealed to me that they were merely clay bricks laid one on top of another. God and his splendor, God alone is real, and the splendor has but a two days existence. The magician and his magic all become speechless with wonder at the magic, but it is all unreal. The magician alone is real. The rich man in his garden, people see only the garden. They should look for its rich owner. So you see what Takur is saying here. And Jesus said it too. Jesus is walking with some of his disciples through, through uh, Jerusalem. And Jesus leaves the temple and he's walking away when his disciples come up to him to call his attention to the buildings. Do you see all these things? Do you see all these things? He asked. Do you see these, all of this architecture? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left upon another. It will all be torn down in time. You see how these men and these seers, how they look at the world, they never forget. Discrimination to them is coming to the reality so that they don't get caught. So when the scripture says to them it's unreal, they're like, oh, how can all this be unreal? They've looked, they've thought, they've discriminated, and they've understood. Ah, you're exactly right. It's not unreal. And so what does Takur do in that knowledge? He's not down and pointless and without a meaning in his life. What's he do? He says, no, no, my, my life is to find the owner of the garden. This stuff isn't real, but it's all here for some reason. The magic is all tricks, certainly, but there's a magician in there somewhere that's doing all of this. I want to know the magician. I want to go find this magician. In inspired talks, Vivekananda tells us to take refuge in this, in this world. He says, in this unreality, the confusion that's going to arise from that thinking, from this fear of things. He says, take refuge in some soul who has already broken his bondage, and in time he will free you through his mercy. Higher still is to take refuge in the Lord, but it is most difficult. Only once in a century can one be found who has really done it. Feel nothing, know nothing, do nothing, have nothing, give up all to God and say utterly, thy will be done. We only dream this bondage. Wake up and let it go. Take refuge in God. Only so can we cross the desert of Maya. Let go thy hold, sannyasin bold. Say om, tatsat om. In the Bhagavad Gita, most of you maybe have read it. It is the best commentary we have on Vedanta philosophy. Curiously enough, the scene is laid on the battlefield where Krishna teaches this philosophy to Arjuna, the doctrine which stands out luminously in every page of the Gita. The message is intense activity, but in the midst of it, eternal calmness. This is the secret of work, to attain which is the goal of Vedanta. Inactivity, as we understand it, in the sense of passivity, certainly cannot be the goal. Were it so, then the walls around us would be the most intelligent, but as it is, they are inactive. 
Clods of earth, stumps of trees would be the greatest sages in the world, but they are inactive. Nor does inactivity become activity when it is combined with passion. Real activity, which is the goal of Vedanta, is combined with eternal calmness, the calmness which cannot be ruffled, the balance of mind which is never disturbed, whatever happens. And we all know from our experience in life that this is the best attitude for work. So we see here in two different ways that Vivekananda, that Thakur says, see all of this, know that it's unreal, but know that it's pointing at something, it's indicating something, there is something behind it, there is something meaningful here to have, go look for it, make that your point, make that your point. And, 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 and Vivekananda coming in saying, yes, and take refuge in that idea. Take refuge in the teachers who can show that to you so that you can undo these things, so that you can find the power within yourself to feel nothing, take nothing, own nothing, need nothing, be absolutely free. But then he's very careful to make the point that that does not mean that you do nothing <laughs> in the sense of manifesting. The doership that he's talking about is the doership of inspiration, not the doership of calculation. The doership that does because of an, it's an isness, that you know your nature. You've, you've met the rich man, so you know all about his gardens. You've met the Maharaja, so you've sat on his gold couches. You know how much he spent on them and how long he, where he bought them and where they're going when he's finished with them. These ideas are there. He says to, to throw yourself into it, but own nothing, feel nothing. But find a calmness in that. Find a strength in that. Find a peace in that. That there's nothing to be done. There's nothing that you need. There's nothing that you have to have. Your circumstances and all the objects that fill it and the time that surrounds it are not you, are not what you're looking for. They're not going to fill you up. They don't have a reality in them that you can take with you that is meaningful because they're all caught in time they all become potting soil and at the end of the day they won't give you what you're looking for money is not security the need for money only increases more need for money because money always can disappear how i i read a startling statistic one time i'm gonna have to make up the number but it was somewhere around more than half of all nfl players by the time they're 30 are bankrupt <laughs> You know, or go bankrupt at some point after their retirement. You know, it's this notion: you cannot find what you're looking for in any arrangement of circumstances, or objects, or things. But this is not to be feared. There's a wonderful story here by a Mrs. Ella Wheeler Wilcox. <laughs> a church lady, no doubt, but a, one with a great insight. She went to see Vivekananda early on, and she gives this and talks about this experience. Mrs. Ella Wheeler Wilcox, one of the founders of the New Thought Movement in America, spoke highly of Swami's teachings. She and her husband first went to hear him out of curiosity, and what happened afterward may be told in her own words. Before we had been ten minutes in the audience, we felt ourselves lifted up into an atmosphere so rarefied, so vital, so wonderful, that we sat spellbound and almost breathless to the end of that lecture. When it was over, we went out with new courage, a new hope, a new strength, a new faith to meet life's daily vicissitudes. It was that terrible winter of financial disaster when the banks failed and the stocks went down like broken balloons and businessmen walked through dark valleys of despair and the whole world seemed topsy-turvy. Sometimes after sleepless nights of worry and of anxiety, my husband would go with me to hear the Swami lecture and then he would come out into the winter gloom and walk down the street smiling and say, it's all right, there is nothing more to worry over. And I would go back to my own duties and pleasures with the same uplifted sense of soul and enlarged vision. I do not come to convert you to a new belief, he said. I want you to keep your own belief. I want to make the Methodist a better Methodist, the Presbyterian a better Presbyterian, the Unitarian a better Unitarian. I want to teach you to live the truth 
to reveal the light within your soul. He gave the message that strengthened the man of business, that caused the frivolous society woman to pause and think, that gave the artist new aspirations, that imbued the wife and mother, the husband and father, with a larger and a holier comprehension of duty. That's what it means to take nothing, to want nothing, to do nothing, to ask for nothing, to collect nothing, and just be. Swamiji knew. He never lost vision. He never lost the idea that I am that eternal self. He became the lion of Vedanta. And look, he went up and just gave a lecture. And from that lecture, look, what, look what, how he affected them. This businessman who had lost everything in the Great Depression walks down the street. It's okay. All my worries are taken care of. You know, he becomes an inspiration to, to a vapid society woman, actually gives her something that causes her to think about something. You know, this idea, just this being, if you learn to, to, if you learn and meet the master of the house, if you come to know that in that, that self that burns within you, that pure love that is manifesting, that's, that is throwing off this heat of existence, just by, its, just by it being existence itself, this is what is. If you understand that love is the source and root of it all, then your life becomes this without you doing anything, without you trying anything. You become that inspiration. You become that encouragement. You become that security. You become that hope. You become that help. Just by the nature of what you are, not because you're working on being a better person, not because you've learned that every time the computer beeps, you call that person to say hello. <laughs> you know, I've had that temptation. You know, I've thought, I thought, because I, 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 I have this problem remembering people's names, and I have problems with following up with people when they tell me stuff and even remembering <laughs> what they told me what to do. So I thought, well, maybe I'll just start putting it all in the computer. You know, like every time somebody tells me something, I'll be like, okay, I'll put that in there. All right. Okay, yeah, get everybody's birthdays. And then, you know, the, I get up in the morning and all I have to do is go check my email and all these little reminder notifications fill up my list, you know, call such and such and encourage them about their job. Oh, it's such and such birthday today. You know, oh, here's a picture of the people you met yesterday with their names highlighted on it, <laughs> you know, all these things. And at first it was like, yeah, this is the way to do it. I'll become a better person this way. <laughs> and I thought, after I got it going, I looked at that and then I look at something like this and I'm like, boy, that's the wrong way. Boy, that's the wrong way. I need to just clear my mind of all the frivolous stuff that pushes out the important things, that, that, that makes me forget how important my friends are and how important people are, that, that covers up my vision and, and doesn't let me see that everybody is, is manifesting this beautiful divinity that is everywhere. I get caught up in the bad. I get caught up in the news. You know, I look on the news. I always bring the news up because it, it's so weird these days. It's just, <laughs> it's just so weird. I don't even know where to put it in my head. And you get all concerned about these things. But then go outside. Take a walk. Where is that news? It becomes, it, you know, it's, 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 it's important and valid to somebody out there what's happening in Syria. Certainly we should have a level of concern about it. But we take on such a weight of these things, these huge things that are so far away and so big that really there's nothing you can do but worry about it. There's nothing you can do but bemoan the condition of it all. So stop it. Stop getting your sense of reality from a box, you know, from an internet, <laughs> from a computer, from a machine. Go outside. Go outside. You'll find most people out there are not trying to kill you. You're going to find that you can probably walk a lot of places a lot of times before anything negative happens at all. You know, you're going to find that people are pretty friendly if you say hello to them, if you talk to them. You're going to find that people are really gracious if you do something for them, if you sit and listen to them for a moment, if you offer to help them in some way. You find that the world and, and the feelings that it gives you is radically different than the world as it's fed to you. You'll find that, that God really is present, that re love really does manifest more love, that caring really does manifest deeper love and deeper appreciation for the world and people around you. Go outside. Take a walk in the woods. Take a walk and see what this world looks like without the ego of man imposed on it. 
Look at how everything just somehow works together. Look in the, in the woods, how that harmony just sings to you. That's how the sages knew that God was one. That's how they knew that, that, that all of this is one giant being, you know, without boundary, ever free, ever pure. That's how they know. They went out and they paid attention. They learned from the hand of God himself, from him manifesting. They looked around and understood, okay, this is God. What can I learn from this being God? I can learn harmony. I can learn peace. I can learn oneness. I can learn inter interdependence. I can see how everything depends on everything else. I can find the place for violence in this creation. I can identify what's meaningful and what's not meaningful. I can see the sameness that hangs behind it, that even though this forest has been here for a thousand years, none of the trees that are here have been here for even 50 maybe, you know, that everything is new like that. So you can see how that sense of oneness that's eternal that is behind these things, that a forest stays a forest regardless of how many times the trees die and are replaced. You know, I sat there in San Francisco, lived there for almost 30 years, and I remember going up and sitting on a, on a hill up behind the Ghirardelli chocolate factory, for those of you who know where that is, and I looked out over this bay, which is beautiful. San Francisco is an incredibly beautiful place. There's no doubt about that. But I had a very bizarre experience because I was sitting here on this hill looking out over everything, and I was looking at a fisherman's wharf that was not a fisherman's wharf. I was looking at the Ghirardelli chocolate factory, which is not a chocolate factory. I was looking out at Alcatraz prison, which is not a prison. I was looking out on the great clipper ship with its masts out there that's moored permanently to the coast is not a ship, you know. I looked out there and I thought, is there anything real here? <laughs> you know, is everything mimicking something else? And, I've, and, I, and I had to walk back to the monastery, but with that thought in my mind, I was looking around and I was like, just in the 15 years that I lived in that monastery on Union Street, I probably saw 200 businesses come and go. And yet, the idea of Union Street had remained the same in my head somehow, inexplicably. And I began thinking about that. I was like, gosh, the people that live in all these places right now, where were they 50 years ago? The house was still there. The building was still there. The place, the, the city was completely different than what it is now, inhabited by a completely different set of people. And yet somehow there was a sameness behind that. It was still San Francisco. And I look at it and I just call it San Francisco. And if I'm deluded, I don't think about it. San Francisco is an eternal, safe place for me to be. But when you think about it, you, you see exactly what the scriptures are saying to you. There's nothing here. <laughs> There's nothing real here. There's not a place for you to identify yourself with here. There's not, this place does not give you meaning by what it is or what its ideals may or may have been or are or aren't. There's nothing here. What's here is you. And it's you that sees all of this. And it's you that imbues it with meaning. It's you that gives it understanding, that gives it a point. And just like Vivekananda says, I want to teach you to live the truth, to reveal the light that is within your own soul. That is the point of our Vedanta. That is the point of our spiritual life. To let that light just be. To not let all of the anxieties of a body get in the way. Not let all the insecurities of a mind put blocks in our, in our acts of love, in our acts of caring. To go and just spontaneously care. You, you might end up like Mother Teresa. Would you regret that? You know? You may end up walking away from everything in your life to serve someone else. Will you regret that? Then why be afraid of it? Wherever mother's going to take you once you start to open that window, why be afraid of it? Why imagine, oh, I would lose my house. Oh, you know, if I started living like that, I could never function. I, my job, I would lose my job. And, you know, I'd, all these people I'd have to care about. And I'd be buying food for homeless people from now until the day I die. There's a million reasons that the mind will come up with. You're not the mind. You're not here to obey the mind and all of its troubles and all of its perceived shortcomings and all of its reasons for not being what you are. You don't have to listen to it. You don't have to subjugate yourself to it. 
your fears, your anxieties, your sadnesses, your attachments. You don't have to. You have God's permission to need nothing, to want nothing, to feel nothing. Because all those things are done by ego, that sense of separation from God. When you come in touch with this eternal light of yourselves, when you come in touch with that joy, then like Swamiji for this businessman, you become a lightness that he can let go and be like, wow, everything's all right. You can become this beautiful, beautiful soul. Like the master. The master says that now and then Hazra came forward to teach me. <laughs> he said to me, why do you think so much about those youngsters? One day as I was going to Balaram's house in a carriage, I felt greatly troubled about it. I said to the Divine Mother, Mother, Hazra admonishes me for worrying about Narendra and the other young boys. He asks me why I forget God and think about all of these youngsters. No sooner did this thought arise in my mind than the Divine Mother revealed to me in a flash that it is she herself who has become man. She manifests herself most clearly through a pure soul. At this vision, I went into Samadhi. Afterwards, I felt angry with Hazra. <laughs> I said to myself, that rascal made me miserable. And then I thought, but why should I blame the poor man? How is he to know? This notion, you see, so a man of perfect realization, he, he, he wasn't uncaring. You know, so when, when Vivekananda is saying, feel nothing, the end of that sentence is, the, the manifestation of that is not that you're going to feel nothing. It's that your ego isn't going to impose its own feeling on things. It means you're going to feel something from within naturally because you are love itself. And love itself feels. Love itself cares. Love itself invests. Always looking to lift up. I've read this scripture so many times here, and I'm going to read it again this morning to close. This from the Bible about your nature, about what is in you, and what you will become once you stop trying to become. <laughs> what, what will happen to you when you stop trying to change and stop trying to construct a personality, you know, stop trying to get caught. That's another realization that happens at some point sometime when you realize your personality is something you've, you've literally put together to please others, you know, your sense of humor, so you get known for being funny. So you work on that. That becomes a burden <laughs> after a while. Oh my God, I'm the funny guy. I better live up to that. You know. Oh my God, I'm the spiritual guy. I'm the I'm the inspiring guy. I better live up to that. That's the nature of the ego. If you start doing these things as impositions on yourself, trying to be something, you know, you get stuck because you can't maintain it. You can't hold that building up. That building's going to come down. That's the nature of things. You're going to suffer a horrible humiliation on that road. So what do you do? You stop with all the planning and thinking and calculating. You go inside. Takor, he said a, a wonderful phrase here. And again, I'm probably not going to be able to find this because I'm all over my notes trying to keep them here. He, saw, he talks about that, that we've spent all of our time going outward into the senses. We've spent so much of our life worrying about the things that we're seeing and hearing and doing and thinking. He says that, that we have... We have left the internal world, completely neglected. We've forgotten what's in there, the nuances of the peace that swirl around in there by nature, the freedom of no worries, the freedom of an eternity that's, that's touched upon in the soul, when you can realize that there is a sameness behind everything that's not attached and not attributed to anything, that it's in and through but untouched, you find that in yourself just as easily as you can put a tomato on your kitchen counter. You can sit down in a room and be quiet and go inside and touch that spark of divinity. It's there. It may take you a few tries. It may take you a while to shut the noise of the mind down to stop it running off and getting to all the things that it gets into. But remember how many years of investment have you put into creating an outgoing mind? And just realize that it may take just the same amount of years to go back to that internal space. Know that up front. This could take some time. But it's worth it. It's what you are. It's the only thing that produces happiness, according to the scriptures. Only the wise man who discovers this and touches this will find eternal peace, will find eternal bliss. So it's worth the effort. 
Paul is writing a beautiful thing about love. And again, in this one, we'll do that at the end. He just says, and this is a wonderful thing to meditate about, because this, this is a description of the reality that is behind everything. You know, in Advaita, so many times, it seems like it's so dry and bland, because we think in Advaita that, that there is no God, and that's why a lot of us like it. And uh, I'm quite tickled with that notion, because really the truth of it is that there's no you. God is left intact. It's you that disappears, not God. Which is a wonderful thing because this is exactly what keeps Advaita from being depressing. <laughs> that, what, that, that keeps it profound and meaningful. Because what is left is Satchit Ananda, eternal love, eternal existence, eternal knowledge, intelligence. And it looks like this when it manifests. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are languages, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when oneness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away the ways of childhood. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know only in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So this beautiful notion of love it's comforting in a couple of ways. One, if you want to step into the duality that we experience and see God as other, then these are the qualities of God. Do you relate to God this way? You know, this is an important scripture to me because I, kept, I grew up with a God that did, in fact, keep record of wrongs <laughs> and seemed rather enthusiastic about it. You know? So here I see that God does not, in fact, keep a record of wrongs, that he's not out to keep a list of, of how I'm failing. And that really isn't necessary for me to go in and apologize every time I walk in the shrine room. <laughs> that doesn't have to be the first. Because God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy. He is not boastful. She is not proud. God does not dishonor others. He is not self-seeking. She is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. God does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. He always protects. He always trusts. She always hopes. She always perseveres. God never fails. And then you can go through, if you want to go to the Advaitic principle, and put your name in there. Put who you are in there. I am patient. I'm kind. I do not envy I do not boast. I'm not proud. I do not dishonor others. I'm not self-seeking. I'm not easily angered, and I keep no record of wrongs. I do not delight in evil, but I rejoice in the truth. I always protect. I always trust. I always hope. I always persevere. I never fail. It's a beautiful ideal. And more than an ideal, it's your nature. It's what you are. It is the manifesting of this nature that will bring you the peace you're looking for. It's the manifestation of this nature that will give you inner happiness, inner contentment, that will let you know that you're home wherever you are.
that you're ever free. You've never been bound. That you will never die and you've never been born. That you are that unity in all things. That you see yourself in the eyes of everyone around you. And because of that, you care as deeply as you can. You feel as honestly and as authentically as you can. And you manifest this perfection, just like Jesus did, just like Buddha did, just like Rama did, just like Krishna did, just like Ramakrishna did, <laughs> or any other host of ideals. Vivekananda gives you permission to choose any ideal out there. But follow it, take refuge in it, and insist on being what you have always been, love itself. Just sit there. Just sit there right now. Don't do a thing. Just rest. For your separation from God is the hardest work that you've ever done in this world. Let me bring you a tray of food and something that you might like to drink. You can use these soft words of mine as a cushion for your head. Let's take a moment just to think about these things as we do.